If you have your Bible this morning, go ahead and turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. And it's a passage that is all about sex. So the sermon this morning is all about sex. If that's not what you came here for, uh, you know, we'll be on to something else next week. Sorry, this is what you get today. At our church, if you're visiting, uh, the way we handle the Bible and the way we submit ourselves to it is just to pick a big chunk of it and to go through it verse by verse with whatever comes next. So if you're visiting today, this is not a passage we have chosen because we thought it would be more likely to get you to stick around with us. Who knows, maybe it will. I don't know, time will tell. We chose it because it was next, and we think it's, it's life-giving, that there's, there's, uh, there is testimony in it from God for our good that we want to understand well, even though it's mysterious, we want to submit to and get joy from. So that's what we're doing today. I said at the outset of this series on this letter that Paul wrote to his friends in Corinth back in the first century, I said at the outset of the letter that it's one of the best ways to see clearly and concretely how what Jesus did on the cross through his death and his resurrection shapes everyday life, the sort of situations we find ourselves in. Uh, that if, I promise that if, if it's kind of abstract for you, making the connection between what Jesus has done and what you experience daily, that this was the letter for you, that it was going to happen time and time again. And uh, today, uh, you're going to see a little bit about why I said that. I mean, the, the, uh, the promise is being fulfilled this morning. Today's text is a perfect example of this. Because what it's, what it's arguing, in the middle of a bunch of mysterious details that we're going to try to understand better, what it's arguing at root is that the fact that Jesus died for you and the fact that Jesus is risen again for you has everything to do with your sex life. That it has to do with your sex life if you're married. It has to do with your sex life if you're not married. It has to do with your sex life if you are sexually active right now or if you're not. Every single one of you is impacted by the vision for human sexuality that comes out of this passage. It is a beautiful one, a joyful one, one we want to savor together today. We're looking at one of, the, one of the sections of the Bible where sex is addressed very directly. There's a few of these through the, through the Bible, and this is one of the most direct. Um, and it's a great chance because of that for seeing what Christians actually think about sex. There's a lot of misinformation out there. I don't know what your associations are with what Christians think about sex. Uh, I think the old cliche has hopefully lost some of its power lately is that Christians are ashamed of sex that it's only about producing kids and shouldn't be talked about in polite company, maybe a little bit dirty. At best, it's a necessary evil. I think that's kind of a, a cliched way of understanding what Christians think about sex. Today, I think you'll see that is not the case at all. It shouldn't be. Uh, at the very least, though, you probably don't know that if, if, if whatever misinformation you might have about what Christians think about sex, you probably know that Christians think you shouldn't be having sex unless you're married. And if you're married, you shouldn't be having sex with anybody that you're not married to. Um, and that, if that's what you think, is actually spot on. That is what Christians think. Um, and today helps us to see why. Because at, I'm guessing that, especially if you're not really familiar with the church, if you don't have a background in it, the fact that Christians think you shouldn't have sex with anybody who's not your spouse might seem totally random to you. Like kind of of the order of beliefs like you know, Muslims don't eat pork. And it just seems so random. I mean, why, why not pork? And maybe you're thinking that this, one, this, this law fits right in there with that. That it's just sort of part of a bygone era, had some sort of cultural association, maybe, at one time, but doesn't really anymore, and it's just sort of Christians trying to hold on to a tradition. That's where I want to press in today. If that's where you are, if it doesn't make sense to you why Christians should think that premarital or extramarital sex is such a bad thing, 
that's the question I want to get at today. Why do Christians think it's such a bad thing? And what, you want, what I want you to see is that sex is a thing of such beauty and such power, such power, that it has to be used carefully or it's very dangerous. And what I want you to see is that the ultimate purpose of this powerful gift is a deeper joy in what Jesus gives us. That the thing itself, the act itself, has been perfectly tailored to help us see and savor what Jesus gives us. Hopefully that's what we're going to get at today. God help us. Now, would you stand with me in honor of God's word? If you found the passage, uh, we're going to read together from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 to 20. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 to 20. This is the word of the Lord for our good. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I won't be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God, you are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. This is God's word. You may be seated. I want to give three answers from this passage about why. To to answer the question, why do Christians think sex outside of marriage is such a bad thing? And the first is in the first couple of verses in our passage. And it's the sacredness of the body. That's why Christians think sex outside marriage is... Is such a bad thing because your body is sacred. Now, some may think that Christians are opposed to sex outside marriage because they're ashamed of the body and what it can do. Sort of shame-based repression. Um, that's not it at all. The Christian view is not rooted in shame. It actually stands completely opposed to any shame-based distaste for sexual activity. But the Christian view also stands against another view that's just as common, if not more so, as the sort of shame, sex is dirty view. It stands against a view that was common in Paul's day and is common even still today. And that is that sex is just unavoidable. It's a natural appetite. You know, bodies do what bodies do. You were made for it. It would be foolish and silly to deny it. Um, Made for it is actually the wrong way. Your bodies are just conditioned for it. In the Greek system, it would have been just because that's what bodies do. And in our 21st century uh, godless system, you know, if, 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 in a system where God is not a factor, where creation is not part of the story of the world, then bodies are just made to reproduce. And that's how the species extends itself. They're just here, and they just do this. It's natural. But the Christian view is that the body is sacred. See, See, this view that 
Sex is just sort of a natural appetite that's unavoidable, and so it would be crazy and kind of silly to restrict it at all. It's actually a really low view of the body. You know, what it says is that the body is just no more than, than tissue that's, that's here now and is decaying, it's on its way out, so do with it what you will, you know? It'd be silly to think it's important enough to restrict what it does. It treats the body like some sort of company car, you know, that you didn't have to pay for and that you don't have to take care of because it's just going to get turned in at the end. It's appreciating anyway. So just use it for whatever you need it for and then be done with it. But the Christian view of the body is very different from that. And that's what Paul's getting at in verses 12 to 14. There's some mystery here that I won't take a lot of time to get into today because, uh, because we just can't. But most people think what's going on in the first couple of verses of our passage is that Paul's quoting common slogans that were used at the time, maybe even by his friends in Corinth themselves. Slogans like, all things are lawful to me. Who knows, maybe they thought that, uh, that because God doesn't really care what you sacrifice to him, what you do eat or don't eat, whether you observe holy days or not, because Paul himself may have taught them that these things don't matter, that God wants your heart, he doesn't care about what you do, that maybe they'd taken that and run with it, you know, so I can do anything. My body isn't really a factor in how God relates to me. So I may as well just do with it what I want. Or that maybe, I think even that second, the second quotation, verse 13, your, your translation may have quotes around food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Maybe they're, maybe they're quoting that, a very common Greek idea at the time. The Greeks believed that the body was holding you back, that your soul is where your value is, and that the idea was to, to get the soul in communion with what's real and not distracted by the body and all of its desires. And that one way of going, one, one way of accounting for the fact that the body can be, can, can be holding you back is just to give it what it wants, just sort of feed the beast, whatever it is that it wants, just keep giving it to it. It doesn't matter anyway, so you may as well. That's what comes through in that food. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. It's just what the stomach does. It eats food and digests food, so you may as well fill it up. God's going to destroy one and the other, so why not? And Paul is correcting them here. What, what comes out in, in verses 13 and 14 is that Paul is saying, you've made, you're, you're making the wrong connection here. That it may even be true that what you eat is not really that big of a deal. And yeah, the stomach is for food and it's passing away, and so you shouldn't, you shouldn't make an idol out of what you do and don't eat. That's a point he's going to make later on in the letter. But you've made a wrong parallel in assuming that just because the stomach and what it consumes isn't that big of a deal, that the body and what it does sexually is not that big of a deal. He's correcting that view in verse 13. He's, he states what they were saying, and then he recasts it. He says the body is not meant for sexual immorality. Food is meant for the stomach. See the parallel? Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Now he says the body is not meant for sexual, for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body saying one of these things is not like the other. And what he's getting at, what he doesn't develop here, but points to in verse 14, is the fact that the body itself is a sacred object made by God. He's pulling on the story that the Bible's been telling from the very beginning, from Genesis, where God creates everything that is, and at the end of his creation, he creates humanity, and he looks at that body that he has made, and he says, it is very good, not just good like everything else, very good, beautiful, just what it should be. It's this body that ends up turning on him, but he won't leave it there. He himself takes on a human body and enters this world, and he does it not just to save souls, but to save bodies. That's what Paul points to in verse 14. 
God raised up the body of our Lord and he will raise our bodies too. So what you do with your body matters. It is not a decaying piece of tissue that has no value. It is, it is the thing that Jesus came to save. Your whole personhood, not just your soul, but your body as well. And so what you do with it matters. It's not immaterial. But what makes sex incompatible with belonging to Jesus? What comes, what makes sexual immorality, I should say, incompatible with belonging to Jesus? And what he's saying is that you can't have both, right? The body is meant not for this thing. The body is meant for this thing. It's meant for the Lord and the Lord for it. It's meant to glorify him, to be the, the agent through which you live for him in this world. And, it's, and, it, and he is for it. He came to save this body. So we see this attachment, this identification between Jesus and our bodies that make our bodies sacred. And, and what we're also seeing there is that sexual immorality is incompatible with this attachment to Jesus. It's one or the other, right? And that doesn't make immediate sense. So saying that bodies matter, that they're sacred, the first couple of verses here, well, that's, that, that's to get us part of the way down the road. It means that what happens with the body is not irrelevant. And you can't just do with it what you want. But it doesn't explain to us why sex in particular has such a dramatic impact on the body. Why it's so uniquely dangerous to the body and so uniquely powerful to accomplish the thing it was meant for. Why does it matter who we sleep with? That's the, that's the question that we're, we've set ourselves up for. And it's the question that I think verses 15 to 18 help us to answer. I want to spend most of our time, pretty much the rest of it, um, on this second point. The power of sex. And that's what comes out in these next three verses. Sex, according to Paul, with some of the text's most interesting and mysterious language, he argues that sex joins two people together. And sex with a prostitute, which in this case is sex outside of marriage. You know, in the first century world, if you wanted to have sex outside your marriage, you pretty much had to go to a prostitute. That's the way it works. Singleness was not an issue. It was not a factor in the first century world. It was sex with your spouse or sex with a prostitute. So he's, he's talking about outside of marriage sex here. Sex with a prostitute, with someone who's not your spouse, joins you to that person. And joining to that person is a threat to your being joined to Jesus. It represents an unthinkable confusion of identity. Now that's the big picture that I want to get us to through looking at these details. Now, fair warning, the details are curious that's a really safe way of putting it. And there is a lot of disagreement about what these details mean, which is never a comfort to a preacher on a deadline. But one thing I think that does come through clearly, and where I want to really drill down here, is that, is that sex outside of your marriage is incompatible to belonging to Christ. Because it takes something that belongs to Christ and makes it a member of a prostitute. Now, that language is all through here and it doesn't immediately make sense. What does it mean to be a member of Christ or a member of a prostitute? Then another step that he takes in verse 16, he says that when you're joined to a prostitute, and again, think about this as joined to someone you're not married to, you become one flesh with her. Again, what does, that, what does that mean? What does it mean that joining bodies makes you one flesh? And what does it mean in verse 18 that, that other sins are outside the body, but, but sexual immorality is particularly against your body? What's, what's the difference there? Those are the, those are the questions that any explanation of this passage has got to be able to answer. 
And they're such hard questions. That they're such hard questions is the reason a lot of people disagree about what the passage means. I'm going to give you my take, all right, which is the take I get from other people who know more about this than me. It's a take that's really well summarized. What, what, the, what the Bible experts have said is really well summarized uh, by Tim Keller in a book on marriage. I think we may have this book back on the table. We, we do sometimes. Uh, he, he's written a book on marriage in the past couple of years. It's really helpful, and he talks about this passage. And, and here's the way he summarizes what all this joining together language means in this passage. This idea of joining your body and making it a member of the person you've had sex with makes most sense if we recognize what a lot of scholars of the New Testament say the Bible typically means by using the word body like it's used here. That it's more than just the tissue, right? It's more than just the physical matter of your body. But it it actually brings in the whole of your personhood. It's, a, it's, it's who you were made to be. That's what soma, the original word here, is, is meaning in context. That's the argument. So, what it's saying is that your personhood, your identity, is connected to what you do with your physical body and sex. There's an intimate connection there. Keller observes that, it, that if all Paul means here by one flesh, when he uses that language is that you're joined physically to the person you have sex with, then he's, he's repeating himself. It's redundant. Here's the way Keller summarizes it. If, if all that, that, that body here means is the actual physical body that you use when you have sex, and that, and that that's what's being joined together, then he's repeating himself. Here's the way Keller summarizes what that would mean. Don't you know that when you have physical union with a prostitute, when you're joined to a prostitute, you're having physical union with a prostitute, being one flesh with her? It has to mean something different from that. Here's his paraphrase of Paul's point. It's supported by a lot of commentators. Here's what it really should mean. Don't you know that the purpose of sex is always one flesh, which is to become united to another person in every area of life? Is that what you're seeking with the prostitute? Of course not. So don't have sex with her. That's his summary. I, th- I think it gets at this passage in a way that helps me to understand what it means. It means there's something about your personhood that's connected to what you do with your body in this one particular kind of act. That your personhood is owned by Jesus. You're joined to him. And that to join it or affect it or change it by joining to somebody else is to, is to compete with the lordship of Jesus in your life. What it's saying is, is that there's something about sex that has the power to change who you are. And here he he draws on the entire Bible's take about sex. Uh, it, 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 he alludes to it in this quote from Genesis chapter 2, the two will become one flesh. In that quote, a loaded quotation. With it comes the whole Bible's take on what marriage is for and how sex fits into marriage. Marriage is about identity. It's about becoming somebody new. That's why it's, we're told that, it's, that, that marriage and becoming one flesh with each other goes hand in hand with leaving your father and your mother. In the ancient days, that was your identity. Who is your papa? You know, what name do you carry? And when you get married, that changes. And now you're no longer identified with that group. Now you're identified with each other so that you are responsible for each other, so that you live life and encounter what you encounter as one. You're implicated in the same things. There's no division between your property or your responsibilities for your kids or, or uh, you know, when one, something bad happens to one of you, it happens to both of you. There's this union of all of life. And sex is meant 
as a particularly designed tool to make that union more coherent, a glue that holds it together. Paul, by, by quoting this statement about marriage, the two shall become one flesh, in this context about what sex actually does, what Paul is doing is saying that sex is the tool God designed for the life-transforming binding of yourself to another person. That sex should change your life. This is a radical view of sex at Paul's time. Here's the way one, one New Testament scholar put it. Paul's here showing a psychological insight into human sexuality. That's altogether exceptional by first century standards. He's describing it as an act that engages and expresses the whole personality in such a way as to constitute a unique mode of self-disclosure and self-commitment. Now, that's, a, that's kind of a clunky and academic way of putting it. Um, I want to put it more in our context. This view of sex as a, as a power tool, particularly designed to make the one flesh joining of two lives together more, more effective, more permanent, sweeter. It's radically countercultural now, just like it was then. I think, I think probably the most common assumption about sex these days is that it's not a big deal, right? That it's, again, it goes back to the just appetites that need to be quenched. It's entertainment. It's bodies doing what bodies do. I came across a quote from an old Friends episode this week in, in which one of Monica's friends, I don't remember which one, was trying to get her to sleep with him and um, she was wondering, well, what, you know, can, can we hold on to the friendship if we do this? And, and he says, basically, yeah, sure. I mean, it's just like racquetball, right? It's just something you do together. Sex as racquetball, I think, is a great way to summarize what many in our culture believe. Now, I can't prove that this kind of casual sex isn't possible. I'm not going to try to prove that. I'll even admit to you that it might seem true that casual sex is possible. That in your experience, you've had casual sex and nothing happened. I'll only say, don't trust your feelings. And how you feel now may not be how you'll feel down the road. And that how you feel now is dramatically shaped by what you want. How you feel now is dramatically shaped by what you want. And you have a strong incentive. All of us have a strong incentive in our flesh to want to have sex possible to have sex without commitment to be able to enjoy the pleasure of it without losing our freedom i think there's a seinfeld episode that actually gets closer to the reality of sex in the friends episode which to watchers of both shows should come as no surprise the seinfeld episode is called the deal it's from sec- it's from the second season jerry and elaine are, are central characters in the show they're they have a dating past now they're not dating they're really good friends uh, but there's always this sort of sexual tension between them in the show, especially early on. Um, and they're both suffering from a sort of dry spell in their dating life. And they're, they're together in Jerry's apartment, and they start talking about what would, what would it look like if we were to have sex again. And so they, they start looking for rules, right? Let's come up with some rules that will make this possible. Um, rule number one, no call the day after. Rule number two, Sleeping over afterwards is optional. Rule number three, the goodnight kiss is optional. Now, it doesn't take five minutes of showtime, maybe one full day of time portrayed in the show for this thing to, the whole thing to fall apart. It's really funny and 
uh, one of the one of the one of the culminating moments, the sort of cap of the of the show that shows how silly it was to think that this would work, is when Elaine has a birthday. Right, he's got to, Jerry's got to decide what to get her, and he realizes that now the relationship isn't what it was. He doesn't know exactly where it stands, and he's got a lot of pressure on him to pick just the perfect gift. And in the end, he just sort of throws up his hands at finding the perfect gift and gives her cash. And so the, 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 the line is that he's more of an uncle to her than, than a lover, right? What, 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 the, what the show gets at, what, what it's really insight, where it's really insightful, is that what they're trying for is sex with independence, a sex that will allow them to go home at night as if it didn't happen. And what they've missed is the inevitable relational impact that sex has on you. What they've missed is that you can't go back to being the uncle who gives cash for your birthday when sex has happened. And what they're after, and what our culture is after, sex is nothing but a commodity. I want to enjoy it. And in the best case scenario, you'll get what you want out of it too. But once it's done, there's no further attachment. It's a simple exchange of goods and services, right? But in the Christian view, and I think this view is supported by experience, this, this misses the entire point of sex, not just on the level of theory, but on the physical and emotional level. Not just what it's for, but what it actually does to you. That the desire for independence is fundamentally opposed to the purpose of sex and what it was built to do. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, sex without the life-shaping commitment of marriage is like putting food in your mouth but not swallowing it or digesting it. Sex outside of marriage where it's meant to be a relational glue where it's meant to be this absolute self-giving and vulnerable self-disclosure is a misused power tool. What I said earlier was that, this, that sex is perfectly designed to do this one thing, to unite two lives more deeply than they could be united by any other means. And that to misuse it is at best to get very little out of it, to, to, to not receive the power of it, and at worst, it could be dangerous at best, it's an empty shell of itself or a cheap imitation that's not useful for anything that matters when sex comes outside of marriage. At worst, it's, it's dangerous on the level of your identity. Now, I've thought long and hard about how to come up with an analogy for this that wouldn't lead to a lot of sort of Freudian analysis, you know, that, wasn't gonna, that you guys weren't going to give me a hard time about. I don't know that I've done that, but I, here's the analogy that I've come up with. Again, go back to this passage is saying, I think, by by talking about how you're joined to the person you have sex with in this personhood-shaping way, and that it shouldn't be done outside of marriage, what what we're being told, I think, the implication is that sex is designed specifically as a tool to do one thing, to unite two people together in a way they couldn't be otherwise. To use it otherwise is to either not get anything out of it or to be dangerous. So sex is kind of like one of those... Uh, one of those powered uh, uh, carving knives, all right? You know, these, you know what I'm talking about? The electric carving knives, you plug them in, they have blades that go really fast, you just cut right through like a big roast beef or something, a big hunk of roast beef. Sex is like a carving knife in the sense that it's really, really powerful for the thing it was made for. You know, that knife is excellent at cutting the beef quickly, efficiently, precisely. But if you're trying to use it as a milk frother, right, then at best it's going to be ineffective. Your milk will be just as it was before. 
It will not have the power to do what it's meant to do when applied that way. At worst, you might cut your hand off. (laughs) Now, this is good news to us. That sex is this way. That sex works like this is really, really good news. And I want to quickly point you why I think this image, this passage's image for what sex does is good news, not bad news. Why restricting yourself in the way the Bible calls you to is really good news for you, not bad news for you. If sex is what many in our culture believe that it is, no more than an exchange of goods and services, then, then the only currency you have is your own performance, right? What do you have to offer the person? And your performance will always be under the microscope. And you will have to keep performing well to keep the thing that you want. There is no rest This view of sex works against one of the most important things that sex does. Absolute trust, openness, vulnerability, and self-disclosure. If sex is something you have to use to get what you want, then you can never freely give yourself that way. You will always be hiding who you are, always insecure about what you have to offer. But sex as a means of absolute self-giving as the glue of a relationship of total identification with the other, that sex places you in the realm of trust and fearless vulnerability and it frees you from the tyranny of performance. It's good news for you that sex works this way. It's also good news for you because it frees us, I think, from the tyranny of the new and the exciting in our sex lives. That's another thing that our culture is pumping at us constantly. And this is one that I think we as a Christian community have probably taken into, our, into ourselves and our practices in a way that we haven't taken that other view of sort of sex as just the thing that you do, so you may as well do it with whenever you want, with whomever you want. We, we're good as Christians, I think, at saying, yeah, we're, that is not right, right? And condemning it and, it and resisting it largely. But there's this other side to what our culture tells us about sex that I think we as Christians even have brought into our marriages, And that is that sex, to be useful and fulfilling, has to be always really thrilling and new and unexpected and exciting. And and there's no question that sex is that sometimes. But it's very unrealistic and harmful to assume that it has to be that to do what it was designed to do. And this view of sex that Paul is presenting us with challenges that that part of our culture, I think. Because ultimately, if you're you're after sex just for self-gratification, right, just because it's what you want, then you're always going to be let down. You're going to get tired eventually. And you're always going to be chasing maybe the sexual tension that comes from an unestablished relationship, right? from the potential of a new partner. Right? That there's always a sort of underlying excitement that comes with that that you won't get in marriage after one year, much less 50 years. You're always going to be chasing the newest thrill, which means you're never really going to be satisfied at least not for long. But sex as a means of self-giving and as a means of identifying with the other, of joining your life to the other, this one flesh personhood that sex is meant to, to help you accomplish, that reframes what you're after and it makes something even sweeter and more satisfying possible for you. I recently read this book by uh, a writer called Lauren Winner. She teaches at Duke Divinity School. She wrote a book about, uh, called Real Sex. It's a, an excellent book 
that takes into account what our culture believes, even what some of the church has fallen, some lies that the church has fallen prey to, helps to correct them. And this is one of the things that she comes at head on. At our culture's belief that great sex, this is a quote from her, is at odds with domestic life, all right? With sort of the ups and downs and responsibilities of the home. Great sex can't happen, she goes on, if you're thinking about the lunches you have to pack in the morning or if you can hear your child get up to go to the bathroom. The realities of hearth and home threaten to tame sexual desire. So our popular culture has turned sex into a bulwark against and a refuge from the commonplace and ordinary practices of marriage. It's created a falsely romantic ideal of sexual love and has radically removed sex and love from day-to-day routines and domesticities of the household. That's what our culture does to sex, even in a Christian marriage. And Paul's vision of what sex is challenges that head on. What Paul's vision for sexuality presents us with is sex as a tool for more deeply sharing the responsibilities that you have that bind you together as husband and wife. So sex belongs in the routines of the household. It belongs hand in hand with the raising of children and the doing of important jobs, of of aiming your life together towards one purpose that matters and is meaningful. And sex that that is aimed at that, at making that glue stick, that sort of sex gets sweeter when the children are wearing you out and you collapse into bed at night because you got nothing left. Because you spent that day together on kids that matter, that give you purpose together as a couple. And your sex life flows from that and then flows back into that and makes it possible for those things to take on newer and deeper meaning. Paul's vision for sex is to make two lives come together as one. And that means it is not opposed to or impossible in, in, in lives that have lots of other things going on. It can actually make those things more meaningful and derive more meaning because you have these other things going on in your life. That's, that's to rescue sex from the tyranny of the new and the exciting and the unexpected from the magazine cover world of nine tips your partner wish you knew and takes it into the world of real people with real bodies and real lives and real commitment to each other. Now, you think that this view of sex, you think that Christians don't value sex? You could not be more wrong. It's those who think that you can enjoy sex and keep your independence that have no idea of the power and the beauty that this gift from God can unleash in your life. Now, I've got three minutes to talk about the purpose of married sex. And because I can't, I'm going to ask you to read Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 and following. Because I'm only going to point you there. And ultimately, Paul only hints at it in this passage anyway. But but it's, it's impossible to read this passage and not see that there's something to do with sex and our attachment to Jesus. This, this members of Jesus versus members of a prostitute language. What is that about? This joining to a prostitute versus joining to the Lord in one spirit. There's some connection here. Paul doesn't go there in this passage, but he does go there in other places, and the rest of the Bible helps us to see what it is. Ultimately, what the Bible tells us about marriage, and therefore, because sex helps to, to cement marriage, what the Bible tells us about sex is that the whole thing is designed on purpose as a visual aid that helps us to see the beauty of what Christ is for us, of our joining to him, of our identification with him and for his sake. 
Ephesians 5 says marriage is mysteriously designed to picture that relationship. And to the extent to which sex makes marriage deeper, to which it makes this one flesh identification possible, to that extent, sex in our marriages enhances our identification with Jesus. And in some mysterious way that we can't fully understand, the joy and the pleasure of sex, even the pleasure of it, which is real and undeniable, even that pleasure is only a faint foretaste of the pleasure that we get in all of eternity by our union to Christ, by our absolute and unashamed disclosure of ourselves to Him, by our reception of His once and for all approval of and affirmation of who we are, soul and body, that our marriages and our sex lives are meant to picture and give us a taste of, a little taste of that reality, that in Christ we are we are who we were made to be. Now, what that means is that sex without commitment takes an image of the joy and the union of heaven and turns it into a picture of hell. It turns it into self-absorption and short-term pleasure followed by isolation, loneliness, and regret. But sex that serves the union of marriage is an incredible and a mysterious foretaste of the union we were made for and that Jesus has made possible by his death and his resurrection. Now, I want to close by talking to two groups of people this morning. I want to let this passage hit you in the way that it's meant to, right? But I realize that, that there are many of us in this room whose sexual past is not what we wish it was. And you could hear this as you, you could misread this passage as telling you that you are permanently damaged goods. That your identity and your personhood have been permanently affected by what you've done. Now, I won't pretend that you won't have issues to work through based on your sexual past. But all, all that you need to know, if that's you this morning and you're worried about it because of this passage, all that you need to know is the message of verses 9 to 11 in this same chapter. Remember that? The kingdom of heaven, Paul says, doesn't belong to the sexually immoral. And such were some of you. But you were washed. And you were sanctified and set apart. And you were justified. That means God looks at you and he says, you are what you should be. Pure. You are mine. That's all that you need to know if that's what you're worried about this morning. And the other group I want to talk to, those of you who are single, right, which in our church is a majority. This vision of sex, I hope, has portrayed it as something that's glorious, that is, it is wonderful not to be missed. And if that's the way you're receiving it, I think that's a good thing, but could also be a depressing thing, right? Because what you could be thinking is, how can I have a full and meaningful life unless I have this? And to you, I want to say, come back next week, all right? <laughs> because uh, chapter 7 is for you. Chapter 7 goes there. So come back. Oh, Father, we need you and your power to purify us from what we've done and can't erase, to capture us so that we are now who you made us to be, and to keep us faithful to the vision for our sex lives you have laid out for us here. There is so much about us and what we want that makes this hard, whether we're single or married. And even if we're married and not tempted to cheat, our sex lives can make it very hard to believe that sex can be what 
this passage describes it to be, the power that this passage describes. We are all, in our own ways, broken and held back by the fall. And what we pray for is sex lives fitted to where we are, to the relationships and commitments that we have, that are redeemed and put to use for the glory of your name. We know that we are not our own, that we are bought with a price, and we want to glorify you with our bodies as this passage calls us to. And so we ask for your Spirit's help in Jesus' name. Amen.